Welcome to the Jay Morton Podcast. Welcome to episode six of the Jay Morton Podcast. Today we're going to be speaking with Leo Holden. Leo is a world-class climber, alpinist and adventurer who has scored many epic ascents all over the world. As one of the world's greatest climbers, he has a great outlook on life, can tell an epic story and is and should be a role model for many. But first, a massive shout out to our sponsors, Harley Davidson. It's been an exciting summer with Harley Davidson. I've had the privilege of being one of the first riders to try out their Pan America adventure bike in the rugged Scottish terrain, putting it through its paces on and off the road. And I'm looking forward to showing you more from that trip later this year. But now, please welcome Leo Holden. Leo Holden, welcome. Uh, How are you doing? Good, thanks, Jamie. How are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. Um, You just come back from a, a trip away, haven't you? Usually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, how, 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 how often, like, how often are you in the UK? Like, you spend much time here, or? Uh, yeah, it, it's really um, irregular. Like, obviously, for the last eighteen months, it's been even more irregular. But uh, I've actually travelled a lot more during COVID than uh, than most people. Um, I've actually been at home for a couple of weeks now. It's anything from three to six months of the year that I'm out of the country. I've got two little kids, so I've been trying to uh, to make it more like three and less like six. But it just depends what comes up, you know. Yeah, like I found, um, I found last year whether it's it's good or not. It was actually still quite easy to travel, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know if easy is the word, but it was easier than most people realised for the first part. Yeah, the UK had like the loosest border controls in the world. Um, yeah. But then obviously, we, yeah, well, they overcompensated earlier this year, didn't they? And, and then it's it's been quite a pain this year with, I think I've spent about 3,000 quid on COVID tests in the last yeah, 18 months. Yeah. They were 220 quid to start with, which... Uh, it's just daylight robbery. Uh, it's got yeah, to be a bit of a scandal that that COVID testing, though, right? It's I did the same when I, ca- I came back from Korea recently, and um, I ended up because I completely forgot about doing the passenger locator form about booking the COVID tests. So I got I went to check in at the airport, and she was literally like, "Right, where's your passenger test? Where, where's your passenger locator form? Where's your COVID test?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, fuck!" So I literally had to do it there and then, and. Um, so I booked the day two and eight, and this is such boring talk, isn't it? But I uh, I booked the day two and eight test, and then I went to put the, the code into the passenger locator form, and it didn't recognise it. So I had to buy another day two and eight test. So I'd spent, I bought the, the five-day test-to-release test. So I'd done 500 quid, and I couldn't even, I've got I've got the, the other two tests that didn't work, sat there just like doing nothing. I can't even do anything with them. Can't even, I've, I've reached out to the company, like, to, to send it back but they won't even take it back some people are doing better than others out of uh, the crisis eh mate I tell you what like those people that do that, that test must be must have made some serious cash so so where have you where have you just come back from then well the most recent trip um, was to the Alps just a couple of weeks ago uh, to Chamonix I went out with a guy called Ed Jackson who is a former professional rugby player who broke his neck um, in uh, in an accident. Uh, he was actually diving into a kid's swimming pool on holiday, uh, which is one of the more common ways that people break the neck. 
and um, he thought he was going to be a complete quadriplegic. Turned out that he wasn't. He's, he's a partial quadriplegic, so he's got severe nerve damage to his spinal cord. Um, but he, we went to climb Mont Blanc. Uh, the weather didn't let us get up Mont Blanc. Uh, there was a big storm on the days we were due to go up there. But we did a few other summits in the area, including some pretty technical, like not sort of mountaineering, like alpine climbing, steep stuff, um, which was ace. He was a, he's a really inspirational guy. He's just got a book out. It's called Lucky. Uh, and it was really cool kind of taking someone massively out of their depth, basically. Yeah. What routes did you do? So we did um, a peak in the uh, in Switzerland, two peaks in Switzerland called the um, the Weissmeist, which is like a, a four thousand meter, just over four thousand meters, and it's kind of scrambling. So it's not it's not like pitched rope climbing. You rope up for it, you know, you short rope most of it. It's kind of you know forty five degree scrambling terrain. And then we did another peak there called the Allenhorn which is similar thing, but that's snow and ice glacial with a, with one pitch of proper climbing, but pretty exposed 45, 50 degree snow and ice. And then we went back to Sham, got shut down by the weather and we did a, uh, a thing up on the index, um, which was like a five pitch actual rock climb uh, with a couple of pitches of, you know, not super hard climbing, but proper rock climbing, pitched climbing, uh, which kind of blew his mind I think uh, as he put it I never imagined doing something like that before I broke my neck never mind afterwards because he's not from uh, an outdoor background and it was really good it was I really I got a lot out of it um, he's a genuinely inspiring guy no bitching or complaining about his ailments um, genuinely positive good guy to be around and uh, and I think he got loads out of it too so it was fun yeah that's awesome it's um I don't know. It's like I, the mountains are like one of those places that are like like the ocean as well. It it can be quite a can be quite a leveler, but it can be quite I don't know for people that have never done it. Like you, you could probably take someone for a walk up like a hill in the Lake District, and if they've never done it, it's like quite quite like a healing place to be, quite like an eye opening place to be. Yeah, definitely. You know, the outdoors is is for everyone at every level. Um, and adventure is is very subjective. It's very relative. If you've if you've never done anything big before, then as you say, just going out is uh, just being out in, in the wilderness, um, in the woods, or in the hills is is a good experience. But I also believe that you know the more you ramp it up, the more you push it, uh, and quite biasly, the steeper it gets and the more exposed it gets the more you get out of it and it does change i do agree with what you say that you know if you've never been into the hills before then it can be mind-blowing just going for a walk um but when you start to ramp it up when you start to get on steeper more exposed high consequence terrain as we call it it is different um you know when there's kind of an element of mortal risk involved it's much more of an adventure and it's much more scary and it's much harder work and you get more out of it uh, you put more in and you get more out and obviously like we managed that risk where what we did with ed there wasn't really there was a few moments where it really was high consequence especially when you're short roping you know where you're not actually attached to the man you're attached to each other he's a big lad you know he's a professional mm -hmm. rugby player so um he's a lot smaller than he was when he was playing but he's still he's like whatever six foot two and significantly heavier than i am 
and obviously that's not the good way around to I'm at the I'm on the front on the rope watching him if he falls. Um so there are moments where there's there is real risk involved, but generally you you're massively limiting that. Um but just the fact that it's there and you know that exposure and being up on a, a knife edge ridge above the clouds, it, it, it definitely adds something to uh, to a day in the hills. Did you have did you ever have any moments where you were just like, ah, oh, like as like you thought he was gonna go? There was no, no, there was, you know, obviously the taking a total novice into a high risk environment, you've got to be really on that. Um, there was one moment when he slipped. Uh, he, he's, he's kind of injuries are similar to that of a stroke victim. His left mm. side of his body doesn't work very well. Um, and he's a hard nut, real tough guy. So he's good at dealing with it. But um, he, uh, yeah, there was one moment where he kind of like tripped over it in not a good spot, but that's what the rope's for. And that's why, and I had him tight and there was no draw. Um, but yeah, it's funny because you, you know, we were making a little film and, and as a expedition leader, as a climber, you always want to limit the drama as much as possible. You don't want anything bad to happen, obviously. Um, but then we came down and we watched through all the footage. Like the, the director was like, uh, uh, it's not very much drama, is there? <laughs> no, mission <laughs> mission achieved. Yeah. Just just throw in some like theatrical music or something when it's coming down a hill. That's that'll create the drama. Well, what we actually did was uh, I took him for a, a walk through a, a boulder field just because uh, just to show how much he struggles getting through bad terrain. Yeah. Uh, it's like it, it's quite full on. So yeah, we got some good stuff and, and nothing bad happened. Everyone had a good time. Is that so? Is that going to come out on TV then? Uh, no, it's just a short film. Um, the Kennel Mountain Film Festival, which is coming up uh, third weekend in November, mm-hmm. um, it'll be shown there, and uh, and Ed'll probably use it in some of his things. It'll probably go online. Yeah, awesome. Um, what about like what about the? You sent me the pictures of the llama, the llama trek across. Uh, where was it? In Montana or Wyoming? <laughs> Yeah, Wyoming, that's right. That was a family holiday this summer, um, which was absolutely brilliant. My wife's uh, mother's American, so she's got a US passport, which was really useful this summer because the US border was effectively closed to Brits. um, But because she's a US citizen and I'm her husband, spouses and kids were allowed in. So we spent the summer over there. And there's a place called the Wind River Range in in Wyoming in the Western States, which is an absolutely awesome place that somewhere I've always wanted to go. It's, it's not a national park. You, we all know about the American national parks, right? It's actually not far from Yellowstone national park, uh, where we spent a few days as well. But the problem is with American national parks, wonderful as they are. Um, and I would strongly recommend visit them if you get the chance, they're really uptight. There's so many rules and regulations and, you know, not least where you have to pay to get in. You can only stay for a limited amount of time. And if you want to do anything fun in the backcountry, you need permits for everything, like backcountry camping permits. Earlier this year, tragically, they introduced a, a permit for overnight climbs in Yosemite, which is the Seriously? end of an era, big time. Yeah, it's a real bummer that, you know, all through the time I spent in Yosemite, and I was always had this kind of... Uh, golden ticket where you, know, you you need a permit for everything in national parks you need a permit to camp you need a permit to go anywhere um 
but climbing always had this kind of loophole where you didn't need one if you were sleeping on a cliff that changed in may this year um but the wind river range it's what they call a wilderness area so it's still protected land with a lot of the same kind of protections that the parks have in terms of no development no roads the big rule being no motorized transport and um, so therefore no roads and and no permanent habitation they're real wild places but they don't have all the uptight regulations which is good because it means you can go for as long as you want you can spend months in the backcountry um you don't need to pay to get in uh and you, you can camp wherever you want you can climb it's they're way more laid and the wind rivers is you know, kind of it could easily be a national park it's as spectacular as as many of the of the great parks of the states and yeah it was the first like I, i'm calling it it was our first family expedition i mean expeditions it's a bit like adventure it's quite a loose yeah. term it can mean different things to different people but having done quite a lot of what i would call proper expeditions myself this was our first one as a family um so we went deep into the into this backcountry wilderness and it's proper cowboy country you know you, it, it's exactly like you would imagine the wild west to be these prairies and forests and rocky mountains and lakes and uh and as i'm sure you know if you want to spend some time in the backcountry the limiting factor is basically how much shit you can carry and with two little kids they can't carry anything freya's eight and jackson's four um and you know carrying any more than i can carry about 40 kilos and even that takes all the fun out of the experience um so we rented two llamas which can carry about 35 kilos each and that's that's the thing you can rent llamas it's <laughs> uh, brilliant yeah yeah and they're ace and they're super easy to handle you do like a the handling course it was like an hour with this guy who was like yeah this is how you put the harnesses on they look after themselves they're camelots so they um they hardly eat anything they just forage for grass uh, you don't have to bring any food you bring a tiny little bit of like grain as a treat they can go for days without water they hardly drink anything no uh, and they're like llamas are you know they're they're quite tactile friendly animals so you don't need like horses are a pain in the ass to look after you kind of have to know your stuff if you want to mm. um if you want to go horse trekking you you need to quite a lot of experience to handle a horse whereas llamas virtually none so yeah so we quested off into into this wind river wilderness for 14 days um just the four of us with everything that you need to survive in the back country you know camping obviously and uh and all the food for a couple of weeks and it's it's proper uh american wilderness so there's bears in there there's mountain lions there's wolves there's moose there's um big horn sheep uh, and it was absolutely epic that's me that sounds like i don't know that sounds brilliant um i love i love to think about the llamas yeah it's i i found out about it a few years ago from someone and you can actually do it in the uk now there's there's even a place in the lakes uh, here where i live um and there's a place in scotland where you can do multi day stuff i'm not sure if they let you take them by yourself but that area in wyoming there's a couple of operations that that rent you these animals and like i say it's super low stress and it's mm. a total winner cuz 
you know, going into the backcountry for any more than like two nights is really difficult, even without a family, because you just end up with such a heavy bag, especially if we, we, we went rock climbing too. We climbed some peaks that you don't normally expect to see a four-year-old on the top of. Uh, so you just end up with loads of stuff. And I'm sure you know from your military days, like carrying heavy bags is not fun. Once it gets over 20 kilos, you know, 23 kilos is your classic uh, uh, luggage allowance for a plane. So you know how heavy one of those bags is. That's about the maximum. Any more than that. And the whole experience is just about about the bag, right? You just you, yeah. you only really enjoy yourself when you take it off. Um, and then you have to put it on and then you look at your feet the whole time. Well, uh, it's, so it's, it's like not a- that much fun. It's the difference between a holiday and an expedition, isn't it? Like you said, right? Yeah. You don't, you don't want to be lugging around 20, 30 kgs of, of luggage. And then you don't want to be cutting down on kit when you're going, going on the expedition. Like you're, you're there with your family and your kids and that. You should, you should want to take as much comfort kit as you possibly can. Yeah, kind of. And the, but the critical thing is food. You know, as a rule of thumb, you're looking at pretty much one kilo per person per day. You can probably group the the kids so you're looking at three kilos of food a day for a family of four that quickly obviously 10 days that's 30 kilos just food um so and it ends up being more than that um so yeah but we uh the llamas can do it for you and it, it's ace i'd strongly recommend it there's uh there's one outfit called llama lander uh, sorry lander llamas in wyoming another one where we got them from it's called ram's horn llamas and they're like $65 a day. You've got to take two because they're, they're really social animals. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's like 130, 140 bucks a day, which isn't that bad considering um, what, what it gives you. It gives you this load carrying beast that can carry all your stuff and, and you get to quest off into, into the wilderness. It's, it's an absolute winner as a, as a family or for like retired people. Um, I've spoken to a few people since who are, you know, they've got to the stage in life where they've got more time than they used to have, but they're, they're, they don't want to be carrying heavy loads. Um, and going out into the wilderness, I mean, I would recommend it for anyone for any period of time, anywhere, be it for an hour or a, definitely like if you can go and kids love camping, especially when the weather's nice. And uh, But once you go for like a longer period of time, like when it starts to be a week or multiple weeks, it's a very different experience. Like it's super beneficial just to go for two days into the backcountry, but you're very much a visitor. You just kind of, it's just a fleeting, like you're just dipping your toe in the water. Whereas when you get into a, a wild remote place for multiple weeks, that's like a part of your life, you know, and, and it's something that stays with you. Um, and, and you really like, You'll never forget it. It's a really beneficial thing. But logistically, that's a ball ache. It, it's hard to, just basically, the food you need for a long period. So, yeah. Also, they were called Tiberius and Titan. So, <laughs> really funny. <laughs> Four-year-old boy. Come here, Tiberius. <laughs> <laughs> did, they, uh, did, did they respond to the name? Yeah, they did, actually. Yeah, and they warmed to us. Like, they were they were nice enough to start with, but after a few days, they, uh, you know, they're your friends, basically. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was wicked. And, like, the fishing in the Wind Rivers is off the hook. My wife, literally, she cast a... She caught, like, a, an edible, you know, maybe foot-long 
rainbow trout on her first cast into this like literally first cast within um no we were cheating we were using a spinner uh which is allowed but frowned upon by the uh by the fly fish folk um but yeah, so you know, like normal course fishing setup with a with a spinner, and literally first cast she pulled out. We caught yeah. like a dozen of things in in an hour. There's edible mushrooms. We found this big edible. It's called a penny bun, like the size of a football, and so you it's like steaks of mushroom, you know, um, that you can fry up on a campfire. You can have fires. You've got to be careful, obviously. With it, it's a dry part of the world. Yeah, it was absolutely dream trip which uh okay. which i'd strongly recommend to uh to anyone now the border's open again um yeah the wind river range and then these and things it- we climbed like if you're a rock climber they're not they're not trekking peaks you know it's not scrambling it's it's proper rock climbing um there's a place called the Cirque of the towers which is the wind river is a huge area it's uh it's about 100 miles north to south about 50 miles east to west like 3,000 square miles or something. Um, but this one area, the Cirque of the Towers, is, is what it sounds. It's these big granite fangs, several, you know, like 1,000-foot-high cliffs in, in a circle around this gobsmackingly beautiful lake. Um, and we climbed a couple of those as a, as a family. We did one of them, all of us. It's called Pingara, this big pointy thing. It's actually not that hard, but, but big 700 feet of climbing. Which you know, Jackson's only like he's not even four foot tall. That, that's a big day for a four-year-old. And then there's this thing next to it called the Wolf's Fang, which is one of the better, easier climbs anywhere in the world. It's uh, it's got this insane, full-on knife edge ridge. It's called the Sidewalk, and it's three foot wide, like a pavement, about 40, 50, 45, 50 degrees in angle, and it's got five hundred foot drops on both sides. It's like even the most seasoned kind of climber out, it, it, it makes your heart beat. Yeah. You know, my little girl, eight-year-old, little skinny blonde thing was eyes on stalks, but she loved it. It was it was amazing. And then a bit deeper into the backcountry, there's a proper big cliff called uh, called Mount Hooker, which is outside of the Yosemite Valley. It's kind of the gnarliest cliff in uh, certainly in the lower 48. Um, and I met up with a mate. Uh, from Arizona and uh, and we did a big a big route on that whilst we were back there like a proper hard climb that uh, whilst we were doing that it was like a 24 hour round trip from camp to camp but big hard route the family were down in in a, a base camp and that's kind of a lot deeper into the wilderness it's a the circle of the towers there's quite a few people around it's not exactly busy but you know it's not uh, a solid a solitary experience whereas Mount Hooker, we only saw one other person in the four days we were back there. But whilst we were up on the cliff, um, a bloody bear came and uh, uh, and bothered um, and bothered Jess. She was in the tent with the two kids in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, they're not like the kind of the bears in, in Yosemite or, or Yellowstone, which are effectively tame because they mm. have so much interaction with tourists. These are, these are wilderness bears. They're... They're not used to dealing with people, and uh, they're very. It's very rare that they'll actually attack or or harm a human. It's usually only if they've got cubs and you startle them. It was looking for food, but she was by herself in the middle of nowhere. Me and my mate were strapped to a, a cliff, 
right above base camp, but you know, many hours away from being able to help her. Um, and so she had to scare off this bloody bear with a, with a. She didn't have to use the bear spray, thankfully, but she was half the night with a with a walking pole and a can of bear spray, <laughs> banging hands together. I was going to ask about the bears. Like, do, is that like I don't know? And do you know, I've not spent that much time in in backcountry in America. Um, like, I spent a lot of time in like California, California, a bit in Nevada, then a bit on the East Coast. But I'd love to go to like some of the national parks. Like, I've not even been to uh, Yosemite. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. There's there's something like when you were talking before about being in the backcountry. There's something I don't know whether it's like um in ingrained in us as like homo sapiens or whatever but there's something historically in us about sleeping outside and sleeping out in in the back country whether it's under a tent or staring at a fire or catching your own food there's i don't know there's some it feels i don't know for me it, the, the times that i've spent doing that even like on tours in uh, like afghanistan and iraq where you're just sleeping under a mosquito net there's something like natural about that that just feels you feel more at home than you do in four walls in a house. I mean, I do. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, doing that, and I absolutely love it. Sleeping outside is one of my favourite things. Although, as you said, that the bugs can be an issue. Um, so uh, sometimes a mosquito, and it's nice but for a lot of people, you know, who haven't served in the military or haven't spent most of their life they they never get to do it i'm sure some of the people listening to this are probably more out outdoorsy but it, it is brilliant and you know, there are quite a lot of barriers to enter it's it's scary we're talking about bears here where um you know a, a lot of people don't realize actually how easy it is to mm. to look after yourself i mean it's different when you go out for multiple weeks but if you're just out for a night or two um it, it isn't that hard you know but one of the things that uh i mean one of the reasons that part of the world i'm talking about is so good is because is it just has amazing weather you know we did have a couple of serious storms whilst we were there um but they that's what you, it's like a serious storm it pisses down there's thunder and lightning we had some gnarly hail storms in the middle of august um or we had one but then it goes and the sun comes back and it's blue skies and uh you know, I have camping here in the Lake District, but no one likes camping in the rain, right? And no. a lot of people, a lot of British people, the reason we ha like we associate camping with shitty experiences when we were kids, where we went to the Lake District or Wales and it rained the whole time. And you know, no one likes camping in the rain. I don't like camping in the rain. But when it's dry, it's a completely different thing. You you, you know, you only you hang out outside. You you really kind of engage with nature in a, in a different way um which is why if you if you can get out to the western states in the in the summer it's a winner although the mosquitoes man and, and particularly in the wind river range it's a really short season it's uh, it's, it's high altitude uh, even the trailheads where you start hiking from are like nine thousand feet mm -hmm. um, which is super high you know yeah. that nevis is four and a half thousand feet yeah nine thousand feet is like the summit of, of a smaller alpine peak um but you don't realize because it's like, you know, that American continental thing. You quite, you don't realize you're like at nearly 10,000 feet. You just drive to the car park and start walking. Um, but it means the summer's dead short. And then in the early part of the summer, it, it, mosquitoes and gnarly, they're like 
off the, you know, like full scale, you need a worse than, a, worse than a, Scotland. A, a, yeah, well, they, they, I mean, midges, the midges in Scotland are as bad as anything in the world, but these are mosquitoes, um, so it's it's totally horrific. But it's they die out really fast, so they hatch, they reproduce, and then they die basically in July. Mm-hmm. So June, when the snow starts to melt and the summer conditions arrive, June and July can be super horrific, and then August it chills out a lot. So um, so yeah, top tip. Strongly recommend a trip to the to the Wind Rivers, mate, but do it in August. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds awesome. Do you think, like, uh, like thinking about what you were saying, like going back to even like sleeping out and camping out and stuff? Do you think you know, like, um, depression's a massive thing now in the world, and like suicide rates and all that kind of stuff? Like, I personally think that there's, I don't know, you live in this like really easy world where you live in four walls with a roof over your head and. You've got, you know, you walk 10 minutes down the road and you can get all the food and crap and sweets or whatever that you want to buy. Do you think that, I, I sometimes think that if people just actually went and spent a night, you know, even camping out in the summer when the, the sun's nice, not on a campsite, like even, like I, I live out in the countryside and I'm, I'm constantly like walking around the heath just thinking I'd love to just dive in there and stick my hammock up and spend a night I do think that it's got like some therapeutic effect that could really help people. Without question, for sure. I think uh, I think everyone should try and, and get out once a year, even if it's just for one night, um, just to go into. And it doesn't have to be like yeah, you know, I'm talking about some. I'm privileged to be able to go somewhere like that, but like you say, it can be. It can be in a. Uh, any anywhere outdoors a little bit of woodland's always nice because it's a bit more secluded um you don't need to go to the end of the world it, it, almost anywhere in the uk you're not more than an hour away from from some beautiful nature and just to go and spend like you say a night in in nature try and do it on a on a not wet weekend <laughs> and uh, and it is good it brings you back to the fundamentals and like you said earlier there's something about campfires which is just hypnotic you know caveman tv is it's amazing and even just the simplest meal cooked on a on a campfire and you don't have to forage just bring some bloody sausages from the butchers you know and fry them on a on a campfire it's it's got this kind of real fundamental uh vibe to it which is definitely and part of the reason i want to do this big trip with the kids this summer is you know they're what we were doing was was quite fun but they um it's just that kind of resilience that comes from from a, a more basic life as you're saying that we're so used to these incredibly easy lives that we now live with our central heating and although it's a bit different at the moment um with the with the food with the supply chain shortages and everything but still it's like life is we, we live like kings from centuries gone by but we're yeah. just so complacent with it that it's almost too easy um and something i really like about about the backcountry and about climbing and about being in wilderness is um you know you, it's hard it's hard everything's hard making a cup of tea is hard like just getting through the basics of the day is is a challenge um and you feel like you're earning it a bit more. And then when you get back, you know, there's nothing I love more than that first hot shower. After Feels a, good. It's so good. And, you know, yeah. you do very quickly slip back into, you know, the world of uh, 
world of plenty but for a week or two you just really savor the i remember after i did a big trip across antarctica a few years ago we were gone nearly three months um of which two months we were like in the field just three of us way out there kite skiing across antarctica and i remember getting back home and just turning the kettle on and just grinning because making a cup of tea in antarctica is such a ball because you've got to like you know you've got to collect the snow to start with and then you use liquid stoves because you can't get gas canisters down there and liquid liquid stoves are ace um in terms of how efficient they are but they're a massive pain in the ass you know you know like the petrol ones yeah and they're kind of oh, dangerous you know you have to prime them and then they flare yeah. up with a big fireball and you're cooking in the tent because it's minus 30 outside and windy and you can really badly screw it up you can burn the tent down if you and you know which is obviously a survival situation and even once you've got it going you're rearing away you have to melt all the all the snow which takes ages and it's remarkable how much snow you need to make like a cup of tea it's like it's a lot more than you'd imagine um if there's no ice around and that's just to like make a cup of tea, you know, it's a it's a huge <laughs> challenge. And then you come over and you just turn the kettle on, you turn the tap on, like all those simple things that you uh, you appreciate them a lot more. It's, it's so true what you said. Like we we probably well we do definitely live way the average person right who's probably on like you know who has an average life probably you know does definitely live way better than royalty or, or a king back in like three hundred years ago. It's crazy. Or is even it, less, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. royalty from the 19th century. Queen Victoria couldn't jump on a plane and be in Australia tomorrow. No. You know? Not, not always, we can right now either. But the, uh, and, like, fresh fruit and vegetables, pineapples and bananas that cost two quid. Um, yeah. You know, we really do live, like... Uh, and, I, and then part of me fears that it's kind of peaking. Yeah, you know, so... I'm not, I'm not a pessimist, but I don't know if... Certainly, my grandchildren um, are going to enjoy such wonder as we, you know, it, it is like unbelievably easy to live well at the moment. Um, and who knows what the future holds? I think we're starting to see how kind of fragile the, uh, the age of abundance is with, you know, obviously COVID, but now the supply chain issues and, um, and shortages we're seeing and obviously climate change no one calls it a theory anymore right it's it's happening mm. um and who knows if we're going to be able to to travel and um and have kind of access to everything that we want immediately uh in the future yeah i think we're on it <clears throat> i agree with you i think there's there's got to be a point where um you know like like you said right pineapples avocados mangoes all these fruits and vegetables and wild alaskan caught salmon that costs seven quid for a 200 grams it's like there has to be a point like what's next right because i remember i remember being a kid and you'd walk into a a spa and you you like wine wasn't the thing right you couldn't really buy wine like the whole coffee boom all that kind of stuff it's like what's next right what's going to be next on in the supermarket shelves like there's got to be a limit to exactly what this whole like ecosystem that we've created as humans can actually 
hold, right? There's got to be a point where it just starts to collapse. And even like, even like the oil thing recently and the whole fuel thing, it's like, I, I, quite, I, can't, I don't know about you, but I kind of like these uncertainties or these like chaos moments because, you know, like when everyone was going to the supermarket and buying toilet roll, it's like, I kind of like it because it's like, right, we've now, it's now like giving people a slap in the face to say like, ex- like things can go wrong in this world. It's not all very easy. And the fuel thing for me was like, it made me realize how reliant we are on on oil or fuel and that's a finite resource um even and it's not just our cars it's it's everything right electricity central heating cooking um all the, yeah, all the gas crisis got. is going on at the same time right the uh, yeah. natural gas kind of gone up eight times in value in the past two months um yeah no we are we're I think it's, uh, I agree with you. I think it's good that we have these crises now and again because it, it brings into sharp focus, um, you know, quite how uh, advanced society is um, and how dependent we are on some fundamentals. And I think one of the big things in the UK, which I think kind of needs to change, is the, uh, is, you know, it's this just in time economy where nobody warehouses anything, everything is delivered just in time. Green beans come from Kenya, they're shipped yesterday. Their sell-by date is the beginning of next week. Um, and it's incredibly efficient and it's been working incredibly well for the last 20 years. But it's, you know, you just in time is also almost late, you know. And yeah. it, it's really fragile, the whole thing. And like now you can't get a bloody new car, right? Because the factories in japan where they make the microchips were closed during covid and so the whole supply chain thing everything's so complex and interlinked now that but and uh, you know it is you know the the whole the kind of vegetable box thing which i didn't even know about that until a few years ago and now almost everyone in on our street here um gets these vegetable boxes uh once a week and it's all kind of locally sourced locally grown stuff um it's peaking right and it's harvest time right so there's all kinds of good stuff at the moment. Give it a couple of months and it's pretty much a box full of turnips. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, I think there's definitely, at least in the UK, um, there is more awareness of, 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 of how fragile the, 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 the planet is. Um, and although there's a long way to go, I, I start sort of seeing the green shoots of, things heading in the right direction you know 2030 they're not going to sell any more combustion engine cars this net zero 2050 target is uh at least it's a target i think there's a long way to go to actually hit the box i've actually been looking into um ground source heat pumps air source heat pumps a lot just recently nice. uh, but we live in an old house so it's mm. kind of a ball ache to make that stuff work but yeah the at least we're not where we were 10 years ago where they still called called it the theory of climate change right yeah there's um i met a guy that worked in the oil industry and um i might get this wrong but it's something very very similar um he was telling me that it takes um three like three liters of oil to produce one liter of oil like the the production ratio is so like to get a barrel to get one barrel of oil into I don't know the world takes three barrels of oil for that production to happen. 
Yeah, probably. I'll tell you another thing that I always think, having, and I remember it clearly from this summer. So when you go into the backcountry and you get out and you've got to carry all your shit around or you've got your llamas and like everything's really hard. I absolutely love my car. (laughs) We've got a big camper van and yeah, it's a diesel engine. Um, But, you know, it's amazing. The, the, The kinetic energy, the potential energy within hydrocarbon fuel like oil is so amazing um it's a wonderful thing that we can that you can travel um but we take it for granted way too much and what's happened this last few weeks with the with the fuel crisis all of a sudden it puts into sharp focus you know how dependent we are how the whole system can fall apart really quickly and we shouldn't be pissing away these resources um we should be a lot more uh aware of how valuable they are uh, and yeah obviously we need to cut co2 emissions but the we're still going to need oil um, we're still going to need kerosene we're still going to need jet fuel but we, we should be saving it for we should be saving it for airplanes we should be saving it for for crucial purposes we should all be driving way more efficient small cars at least there has been good progress on that in the in the uk i mean back in the states man everyone's got five liter engines are not considered big cars people drive you know the chevy suburbans these massive tanks that are just used at grocery shop um and uh you know it's god it's bonkers it's crazy it's like it's like the the best time to live in the world right now with like the technology boom but yeah it's it's crazy as well to think that yeah it's 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 weird it's like you know if if we were down like I'm the same, right? I've got a car, I race cars, right? So I'm burning plenty of fuel. And uh, it's um, like, I wonder if we, we get right down to like the, the last few barrels of oil and just think oh, all those easy jet flights that cost you like 30 quid to go to Portugal for like a weekend and <laughs> how like, I don't know, inconsequential or like um, pointless they they feel at the point where you're just like, right, we've only got these these many barrels of oil left and then we can't travel, we can't go anywhere. Yeah, I'm sure that, yeah, I think there will be technological solutions to a lot of these problems. I mean, already we're seeing electric cars becoming a reality. Um, yeah, but they need fuel, they need fuel a, electric cars need fuel to charge. Yeah, they do, but they don't need, they don't necessarily need fossil fuels, right? There are... Um, okay there are other solutions either renewables or nuclear or uh aviation yeah there there is no solution yet that is not just doesn't require hydrocarbon fuel um and as somebody who i do feel guilty about it but i fly a lot i travel a lot i think we should be saving our oil for that maybe that and racing you know and then yeah yeah yeah. And we should be using alternatives um i think electric cars are probably well they are that's going to be the the immediate solution to the transport um issue at least um, in the uk i think there's like a new fuel isn't there a new fuel being developed that's um uh it's like a percentage a percentage of it is made up from like reusable i'm, I'm gonna get my facts completely wrong here so i'm just gonna i'm gonna pretend i know what i'm talking about but i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure like a percentage of it is made up from like reusable hydrocarbon plastic something or others and like the rest of it is made up from i don't know it's it's way more efficient 
um but you can apparently you can stick it into a petrol engine and i think i want to say porsche is developing it or, or helping to develop it you could probably find out the facts on google and not on this podcast but um yeah, <laughs> yeah no that, that i i am a strong believer in technology you know like with the whatever your opinions are on the on the, the vaccine for for covid that traditionally it takes about 15 years to develop a, um, a vaccine to a new disease that was done in less than 15 months it just shows you that when the scientific community and humans have a proper incentive to make something happen it's absolutely amazing what we can achieve um but it takes basically it takes massive financial incentives yeah obviously a lot of people were dying from covid but it was the shut down of the global economy which really put the rocket up uh, leaders asses to to get the finger out um and i think a bit of that mentality would really help with regards to to the climate crisis if if we kind of treat it with that all hands on deck war type mentality where you're like look let's do this let's pull out all the stops let's give this unlimited resource to and then you will find some you know like you say some new kind of fuel and there, there are projects happening there is amazing stuff happening with with you know tidal flow technology to create mm-hmm. electricity um but uh, it's just all a bit lackluster and a bit slower and everyone kind of just is quite happy with the the status quo um and to be honest like i'm quite happy to fly off on an expedition and go disappear into the into the mountains again whenever i can i'm scheming the next one now yeah, no, same, mate. So, like, um, I, I, I feel like we're just going to talk about global warming all the time and not like talk about um, adventures Fun and stuff. And what, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Leo, you've done like so much in your in terms of adventure and climbing and whatever. Like, I, you know, I, I think the first time I saw you was on uh, the Asgard project, which was phenomenal. Um, Thanks, and like that, that was a good one yeah that was kind of i was getting that was kind of when i was getting into climbing that kind of time so it was um yeah you definitely inspired me uh doing the asgard project but um i guess like like where did it all start for you where did like how did you even get into it or like what inspired you um to, to start climbing in the first place well, I grew up actually just up the road from where I live right now. Um, so on the outskirts of the Lake District. And, uh, and my dad was always like an outdoorsy person. He wasn't a rock climber, but he was into hill walking and a bit of scrambling. And it was actually a mate of my dad's called Malcolm Cundy, who was the rock climber that kind of uh, took us under his wing and, and taught us the ropes quite literally. And that was in like the very late 80s so 1989 1990 which was just before i suppose i was kind of the last generation that got into climbing the old way these days if almost everyone starts climbing indoors um which is ace because obviously it's pissing down in the lake district now for it was nice yesterday but it's um yeah you couldn't go rock climbing today and my kids who climb a lot we we started them indoors um and you can climb any weather it's a really controlled environment. It's a great way of, you know, learning the the basics. Um, and then some people, some people don't, but some people get that to, to outside. Uh, so, yeah, I got into it when I was a kid. And I'm one of those lucky people who found something that they were properly into, truly passionate about and quite good at. 
very early in life. And I, uh, and by the time I was 11, I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to climb really steep, hard things in faraway places. I didn't know that it would be a profession and that I would be sat here 41 years old, 30 years later, having done all this really cool shit. Um, but I knew that it would be my passion and that, you know, if I wasn't doing it professionally, I'd be saving up to, to do it for fun. What, um, kind of what was, I guess, what was your first, uh, big expedition then? Well, like I said earlier, you know, expeditions are a relative term and I think it's kind of easy to be a bit of a dickhead when you've done loads of major trips to faraway places and all kinds of cool stuff. And it, I'm kind of conscious of, um, not like belittling other people's, achievements or aspirations belittle um, them belittle <laughs> <laughs> belittle away i remember what like i mean what i was know the you first I, one, like, I, what, was the, what was the first one when you were like i don't know like right you, you sat down and you went i'm sick of you know or not sick like i feel like i've got to challenge myself out of kind of single wall or you know the multi, you know the, the kind me, of the single wall pitches or uh, like the where I felt like this is proper real deal grown up expedition shit was um, was the Asgard project in two thousand and nine. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd done loads of trips to faraway places. That I, the first time I went to Patagonia in South America, that kind of felt like an expedition. And you know, I've done trips to faraway places before, which which were expeditions, but that was another scale that was like big trip to a really far away place where no one's coming to help if anything goes wrong there it's a many day approach to the objective there you know you're out for months um there's no chance of resupply you you know you that's like i that's what i call a big trip um but you know when i was a teenager um you know, I guess I was 19 when I went on my first really remote place to a, to a place in Chile. But the Asgard project was the first one for me that was like, okay, this is like a proper big project. And also these big expeditions, they cost a lot of money, mm. um, which is a kind of part of the process, just pulling all that together, making it happen. Um, and also, but that was the sickest one ever because, you know, we skydived into the trip, which, okay, you're one of the few people in the world that gets to do that. Basically, the SAS... Not even the paras really get to do it like that anymore. Yeah. You know, that when do you do that? When do you actually drop into the middle of nowhere, unsupported, no comms? Um, you know, we airdropped all our stuff with this shitty little parachutes that I got off eBay for 25 <laughs> and modified them. And then and we jumped with base rigs, which we didn't tell the pilot because it's kind of not legal. Um, no, what with no reserve. Yeah, well, only reserves, right? We didn't have a main. Yeah. Um, base rig's basically like a reserve. So we jumped oh, out yeah. at 5,000 feet and, and opened at like less than 500 feet um, and then spent the next 35 days in this insane Arctic wilderness, this hardcore playground doing amazing stuff. And I mean, that is the kind of sh stuff that I dreamt of when I was a kid watching james bond and indiana jones on on tv and doing it for real with like you know i've worked in adventure tv as well and there it wasn't there wasn't like a helicopter on standby there wasn't a, a b unit film it was totally legit if something had gone wrong it would have been a disaster i'll tell you one thing i learned from that though is 
uh, which you'll know from your military days is basically if you're going to jump out of an aircraft into the middle of an arctic wilderness have a phone in your pocket <laughs> there's no reason anymore not to have communications uh, there's a thing called a garmin inreach which i'm sure you're familiar yeah. with and for your listeners um it's an amazing piece of kit it's uh, it's basically like a pager that works anywhere in the world and uh, it's a gps unit you can sms you can email from it um and it's also plb it's personal locator beacon um which means if you know we call it the old shit button it's just a, literally a big red button that you press and it automatically sends a message to it's basically the coast guard system saying uh saying that you need rescue um because i remember landing at the base of mount asgard and jumped out of that plane uh and then the plane flew away and we were like we used the old school method where if you leave your parachute open um they they did a second pass and if you left it out, you haven't packed it away, it means there's an accident um, and you need help. And if you packed up your parachute, then it means you're okay. And we're all okay. But then I was like, oh, well, what would we have done if we had had an accident? <laughs> it would have been uh, awkward. Yeah. I mean, there are, there is a, it is a national park, that place, and it's a, it's a Canadian national park. So they can get a helicopter out, but it's like days. Um, and then other places like this place we were in Antarctica that uh, in the Transantarctic mountains, climbing a big, steep, hard thing, it's weeks to to get help out there. So, um, so yeah, it's communications are key, right there. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I don't, like just I don't know. People probably listening going like, "What the fuck's the Asgard project?" Um, so that is Baffin Island, right? In... Yeah, it's northeastern Canada, way up in the Arctic Circle. So uh, if you look at a world map, you've got, uh, you know, obviously Europe, then there's Greenland, which is always miles. Um, it's actually not as big as it looks on your typical world map. And then before you get to Canada, there's a few massive islands um, in between Greenland and Canada. One of them is, is Baffin Island. Um, and yeah, this place, uh, Mount Asgard, is this insane mountain that looks like a castle. It's these two barrels of granite that are massive that you know well over a thousand meters tall and it's super remote it's uh it's 60 miles from the closest uh place you can get to with a boat um so it's you know it's like the best part of a week to hike in and where you fly to you fly to this little inuit community called pang Tung, which is the end of the world you know it's this little inuit village in the middle of nowhere and that's kind of the that's the civilization that you begin from you, you you're way out there and you know that was like i said the first my first experience of somewhere truly remote and i absolutely love it i can't get enough of it like right now um i'm basically scheming another trip um to baffin island probably for next year um then there's another area a bit further north in baffin island called the samford fjord which is home to the the tallest cliffs in the world and you know, they're just unbelievable. These places, they don't look real. If you have a look at the trailer to the Asgard project, and it looks like computer-generated imagery. It looks like Middle Earth. You know, it just doesn't look like a place that's from this world. Um, and just to see those places is something special. But then to, like, 
engage with them for long periods of time and do like exciting stuff like hardcore rock climbing, base jumping, kite skiing, these new school action sports that are exciting by car park in the Peak District, doing that on in these landscapes in these faraway places is uh, you know, that's that's where I get my kicks, basically. Yeah, that was crazy. Like I remember watching the Asgard project and I, like I had no idea that you were gonna base jump off the top at the end. And I was just watching it, just like the the film was like gnarly enough to like <laughs> the end, and then you got to the top, and I was just like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> like, cheers, man! It means a lot coming from you, Jamie. Yeah, the yeah, it was of, awesome. Like that, like I don't know, you know, was that? I guess what's what's the height? Is it a thousand meet thousand? Uh, yeah, thousand meters, eleven hundred. Yeah, a bit more. Um, yeah. It's also, you know, the it's where back in the day when Hollywood used to actually do stunts rather than CGI them, um, the 1973 Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me, mm-hmm. uh, the one where Bond skis off the cliff yeah. with the Union Jack parachute. Well, that was legit. That was a real stunt. I've met the guy who did that stunt. Is a California dude called Rick Sylvester. That was one of the first ever base jumps, and it was off Mount Asgard. They flew a full... Hollywood. Oh, they did it. Yeah, they they did it right where we jumped from the same spot. No That's where he skied off. They sent out a full crew. It was the most expensive stunt in the history of Hollywood. Say, yeah. Um, yeah, and it wasn't a national park back then. You wouldn't be allowed to do it now because they, you know, there was still like three by two like scaffolding up there. Where they'd from when he just a, went off the edge yeah I think it might have been a camera position where they'd like uh, bolted this thing on and they had helicopters up there and everything and I remember seeing that film when I was right about the time I started climbing and thinking that is the coolest thing I've ever seen I want to do that and we did you know we did it was we didn't have a Union Jack parachute but yeah. that what yeah. was like I take it that was like a massive achievement for you doing that. Like, what? That, I don't know. Like I've, I admire base jumpers. It's it's fucking insane. I don't I don't know if I could do it now. Like, I, I feel like if I got into to parachuting when I was younger, I probably had built up the confidence to be able to do it. But um, like, what what was going through your head on the ad? Like, because there's, there's so much. I mean, there is so much that could go wrong. But at the same time, I'm sure you dialed it in and calculated it so that it, it wouldn't. But like the fact that if something did go wrong, now oh, you, you fuck basically, aren't you? Yeah, I mean that's why you've got to be so careful. It's super ironic, but the um, the more dangerous it is, the more careful you have to be. The, any idiot, an analogy that I often use, which is a bit cheesy, but it's true, is you know if you cross in a road, crossing a road is a really dangerous thing to do. Um, you, but you look both ways. Uh, you're aware of what's going on and you take a set of um, precautions that mean we all do it multiple times every day without thinking about it. If you walk out into a road covering your ears with your eyes closed, that's really, really dangerous. You're you're rolling a dice. And it's kind of the same with base jumps, an extreme example, but, um, you know, being out doing dangerous stuff in dangerous places, you do, any idiot can get away with it once or twice you can roll the dice and you're probably going to be okay but if you're going to do dangerous stuff a lot 
um, then you need to be really careful. <laughs> it's super ironic, kind of the more dangerous it is and the more often you do it, the more precautions you've got to take, the more careful you've got to be. Um, you know, I've made a few mistakes. I've smashed myself up a couple of times pretty late, um, but I've liked to think I've learned from that. Uh, and in some ways, especially since the kids have come along, um, in some ways, the th things I'm doing now, the trips I'm doing these days are way more hardcore than stuff I was doing 20 years ago. But I feel like I'm doing it with like a, a higher margin of safety. I, I kind of more knowledgeable and better a trip I did a couple of years ago across Antarctica called the Spectre Expedition, where we kite skied for 2000 miles, you know, kite skiing, same as kite that surfing. Looked, that looked epic, by the way. It was next level, dude. That was like the hardest trip I've ever done by miles. Really? Um, we were th three super hardcore guys that were really experienced individuals. Um, and we were like pushed right to the edge. Uh, and it was a long trip. We were out for over two months in Antarctica, carrying all our own stuff. The sledges weighed 200 kilos when we set off. Um, and we went to climb this mountain that, you know, it's, no one's ever heard of it. It's a, it's a giant fang of granite. That's, you have to go via the South Pole to get there. You know, yeah. you have to go via the South Pole. It's so far from anywhere. Um, and that was like definitely the most hardcore trip I've ever been on. Um, but you know, my little boy was, was one year old when we set off that. There was one occasion when we, you know, my sledge fell down a crevasse whilst we were kiting, which is a really, really bad thing to happen. It's kind of like the worst thing that can happen almost. Um, but part of the reason I'm sat here right now is because the, the precautions that we took for exactly that eventuality, basically you put knots in the rope that ties you to the sledge it's the same thing you do when you're walking on glacial terrain and the reason you put knots in the rope is so that if a person or in this case a sledge falls into a crevasse the rope cuts into the edge of the crevasse and one of the knots wedges and it did you know and mm -hmm. like 150 kilo sledge hanging into a gaping hole in a massive glacier in the middle of nowhere and the rope knot was wedged <laughs> like you know that's why we put those knots in that's one of the precautions you take and it worked and i'm not that's, dead that's, that's got to have been one of the hardest crevasse rescues you've ever done 150 kg sledge yeah it wasn't that bad actually like the, the worst bit was just um just the first few moments like where you're not sure if you yeah yeah um because one second I was kiting along happy as Larry, uh, you know, going kiting is awesome. You can go like long distances at high mm -hmm. speed with big load. And then the next, it, uh, not that I've ever stood on a landmine, but that's what I imagine it would be like. It was, everything was perfectly casual and nice. And then the next thing it was like just 150 kilo low, the snow bridge collapsed. It was a tiny little crevasse. It was, it wasn't like I'm, it was not much bigger than the sledge basically and uh but i just hit it wrong and um it like just catapulted me backwards super violently and i didn't even realize what was going on it was over really quick the, the rope wedged but then i was like oh shit am i gonna get pulled you know I must, what if it's just like temporary and what if i'm gonna go it was terrifying but i managed to get an ice screw in and clip into it so you're kind of safe um 
And then we just had to go down into the crevasse and empty the sledge. And uh, so we just abseiled down into it and took everything out. And so it was a bit of a ball. It took a couple of hours, but it could have been worse. So you were, so you you missed you missed the crevasse then with you you were ski you were tight skiing. No, so we were on like, it. yeah, but we'd been over literally hundreds in the last couple of days. We'd to start with upon the ice cap of Antarctica. There's hardly any crevasses. It's uh, it's it's an ice cap. It's not a glacier. Yeah. Um, but it was as you come down into the mountains. What people don't realize is the Antarctic Plateau is high. You know, it's like 3,000 meters up to 4,000 meters. The whole of the interior of Antarctica is is over 1,000 feet. Yeah, um, so yeah, that's really high. The South, the South Pole is nearly 10,000 feet. Yeah, um, I did not know that. Yeah, most people don't. Uh, it's And it's ice. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's the land isn't that high. It's all ice. There's three miles of ice um, over the whole of the interior. 80% of the world's fresh water is in Antarctica in ice form. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, anyway, so you come down off the ice cap and you lose a lot of altitude. We were, all, we, were, uh, we were nearly sea level when we started climbing. Where that ice flows down through the Transantarctic Mountains, you get these mental glaciers, the biggest glaciers in the world, these huge rivers of ice flowing down. Uh, and you can see the crevasses pretty clearly usually because the ice is really blue. And then the crevasses, um, they're full of snow and it's white. So the, the big slots, the open ones, you don't need to worry about because you can see them. And it mm -hmm. has obviously like a massive hole there. Don't fall in it. Um, the ones that are full of snow are the more concerning ones uh, because, again, on, on a blue ice glacier, it's easier because you can see them. They're like stripes. Um, on a snow glacier, it's worse because you don't know when you're over the crevasses. But on this occasion... To start with, we were really careful and we were like going through them. And then we were like, well, let's just see what happens if you just blast over them. And you can go pretty fast yeah. with a kite and you've got big long skis on. And so we started doing that and it, and it was all right. And uh, and there was loads and loads and loads of crevasses. And this is kind of like, no one's ever really done a trip like that before. Um, mm. So we had these massive loads and, uh, and it was working well. So we were just blasting over these things. Um, and what actually happened was we were, we'd just come off the glacier and we were away from all the gnarly crevasses and we were literally like a kilometer from the end of the approach to the mountain. It was 20 of the hardest days of my life and we were 10 minutes away from the end of the first phase of the expedition reaching the mountain. Um, yeah, and this tiny little crevasse. So normally, obviously, crevasses run actually across... Uh, a glacier and so you try and hit them perpendicular right you know you go straight across them mm -hmm. but this little bastard was so little um and it was it wasn't you couldn't see it it was uh we were off the main floor of the glacier so everything was white we were on snow um and i went like across it so the the pulk was going in the same direction the sledge was going in the same direction as the slot uh, and i wasn't going that fast and slowed down um yeah, and like I say, that it was like a joke. The the hole was there was only about ten centimeters around the edges. Pulk was mm -hmm. massive. It was two and a half meter long sledge, and uh, yeah, it just like hit it wrong. I wasn't going fast enough. I hit it at the wrong angle. It was just that classic thing where a few little things lined up in the wrong direction, and 
like I got ejected. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was all right. But then you know, so on that trip, um, it didn't really go. We had a way harder time on that approach. And then the thing that we went to climb was the south spur of this mountain, which is, in my book, the most impressive unclimbed line on any mountain on the planet uh and it cost a fortune it took years and years of effort to get there and me and my mate we stood at the bottom of it um looking at it and it's the most beautiful perfect thing ever and i just had a bad vibe um i was like we are too close to the edge you know the a big part of where I get my kicks from is, is pushing it close to the edge, but you've got to know where the edge is. You've got to like, and it's, it's hard to know. There are no absolutes. It's not like a big red line. It's, and we were stood there and the weather was all right, but we had really useless weather forecasts. And this thing's like two and a half thousand feet tall, nearly vertical. You're at the end of the world. We're getting our asses kicked on the ground. Um, and, you know, if we get hit, if you get hit by a, storm up there with the equipment we had you're going to die um we didn't have a portal edge we didn't have a, a tent that you can hang on a cliff because we have to carry it for two thousand miles in hindsight i really regret not bringing that it's like a 10 kilo piece of kit it would have been the single heaviest thing we had uh, and if we would had a portal edge then i would have felt we were sufficiently equipped to to stand a chance and survive whatever we whatever happened because you can hide in a portage you can sit out a storm you can sit out the wind you you've got shelter you've got warmth you can you can kind of survive anything and i've tested that theory um but without a portal edge if you're on a, a cliff half a mile tall and you get hit by the worst antarctica can throw at you you are fucked um and so we were stood there at the bottom and it was like oh it's been so hard to get here it's taken years and cost hundreds of thousands and here we are it's right there you can touch it we were literally touching it but we are too close to the edge uh, and he was like i feel the same and so we made the decision like not not to even try that line we did climb the mountain from the other side which is miles easier it's still hard um but you know it's i think yeah, I was, and it's, it bothered me for ages because, but I, I, we made a good decision. You know, we made an informed adult choice. You can't rely on luck. You've got to feel that you've got your, your back covered. It's, it's kind of similar to some of the military stuff I'm, I'm sure you've done where you've got to have the odds stacked in your favor. You can't like set off into something with a level of uncertainty that, uh, you know, we were, it was just, we were just too close to the edge. Um, and as it turned out, you know, we, we finished the trip, everything went well. Part of me thinks, fuck, maybe we should have pushed a bit harder. Maybe we should have like had a go and sit, see what happens. And then another part of me is like, look, I've got all my fingers and toes. Um, we had a good time and, uh, and I'll just have to go back and try again. <laughs> Bring a portal edge next time. Yeah, I think with that kind of stuff, when you know, you know, right? You've been climbing for so many years. You've been on so many like expeditions and adventures. When I do, yeah, yeah. When you know, you know, it's not the right time, don't you? Yeah, you've got to trust your instinct, but it is hard because you know the obviously it takes a certain amount of courage to 
even just to set off on on a, on a big, but it's yeah. you know there's such a fine line between badass and dumbass, right? There's such a fine line yeah. between bravery and stupidity, and trying to recognise where that is 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 a, a bit of an art form, really. And you get that Adam magic, like you said, right? You get that summit fever of like all the the time that you spent speaking to people to raise money and the effort that you've got to get there, and then you just stood there looking and at it. The yeah, you're right there. I've yeah. had a picture of all for six years, and I'm stood there. You know, only a dozen people have ever even seen that mountain, ever. Yeah. Do, do you think you'll go back? I, I, yeah, I do. Um, uh, I will. I will. Sooner or later. Um, and next time, I'd like to do it in a slightly different way, which makes it even harder. <laughs> I'd like to kite all the way in and out we flew in a little plane to near the south pole we basically flew to the south pole and we started at the south pole mm-hmm. um which meant the wind patterns worked in our favor but what we learned on that trip was that we could probably you can kite upwind a lot more efficiently than we'd been led to believe okay um so next time i'd like to try and do it without any internal aviation logistics you still got to fly mm-hmm. to get into Antarctica, but then once we arrive in Antarctica, we'd be on the ground the whole way, which adds a thousand miles uh, to the to the trip, of which half is, you know, which is a third again, um, and half of that's upwind, which is way harder than downwind. But there'd be a lot less uncertainty next time, having done a similar trip. You know, there's less questions. We'd have a portal edge, um, mm. certain things we'd do a bit differently, but. It's a ball ache raising money. I'm sure you find that racing cars, right? Like the, it's not fun going around cap in hand, mm. trying to convince people to give you money to go and do something that you want to do. And uh, and Antarctica trips are like proper money, though. You could buy a pretty nice house for the same price as, as that expedition would cost. Um, and I, I'm not ready to... I'm just about ready to start begging again <laughs> and then, <laughs> let's see if we can make it happen in a couple of years yeah looking forward to seeing it happen um like uh just one more thing i just want to ask before because i'm conscious that we're burning time but um like how important for you is it that you expose your kids to all this and um put them out of their comfort zone and expose them to what you what you love doing and you know just how important is that to you well, as I've already discussed, you know, where um, the kids come out with us on loads of stuff. And I, I think it's crucial. And I don't know if they will end up uh, with a life of adventure. It's very unlikely they'll end up with a life of professional adventure. Uh, but, you know, it's not just about sort of learning the skills of how to cook on a fire or how to pitch a tent. There's, there's a deeper value set that comes with time in the wilderness and adventures. And it's it's about, you know, resilience, about being tougher about being more able to deal with situations it's about self-confidence it's about knowing that especially for little girls growing up in the social media age um with you know fast fashion and and all the pressures that come to look good and i think uh some of the values that you learn from from wilderness and from adventure are applicable to all walks of life about um determination about not giving up about uh being capable of more than you think and uh so yeah definitely 
And one thing I would say, which we haven't even talked about, is um, I've got a new film coming out like awesome. next week or actually a couple of weeks now. We did an amazing trip to, uh, to the Amazon rainforest. Really good timing just before lockdown. It was November, December 2019. Our mutual friend Matt Pycroft came along to, yeah. to film it. Um, a young girl from the Lake District who's uh, she's 23 now but she was 21 at the time, Anna Taylor, really good rock climber, but no experience on big cliffs, no experience on expeditions. Um, and we, we climbed this thing called Mount Roraima, which is, you know, is the mountains that I'm into are not famous. No one even knows about them. I mean, even climbers don't know about them, but they're all extremely special mountains, extremely beautiful, extremely wild. And this Mount Roraima, it looks like the Titanic. It's this, giant prow um, that sticks up out the rainforest for the cliff itself is 2000 feet fully overhanging like that. But beneath it, there's another 3000 foot of like near vertical jungle. And it just looks like something out of the lost world. In fact, it is the place where Arthur Conan Doyle's book, the lost world is based. It's called a Tapui, this big flat top mountain that looks like something out of a dream. I've always wanted to do it. And, uh, and we did it, uh, and we went out, <coughs> and we climbed it, and we airdropped all our stuff, and we didn't jump in that time because there's no LZ, there's no landing zone, right? You'd be straight into the forest, which we did consider. Um, I don't know if you've ever landed in a tree before. It's actually not that bad. Um, I've landed in a tree a few times, but never on what, purpose. <laughs> what would you do? Would you do like a, say, like a round? You just land normally. So it just comes down vertical. Well, no, I mean, if we did, if we did, yeah, no, definitely uh, square canopies. Um, but, and you just, I've landed in a tree twice and, um, and it's not that bad. You just land normally. You just come in and as soon as your feet are about to hit the branches, you just flare, progressive flare. And, you know, you get a bit scratched up by the branches, I see. And then almost inevitably, the parachute, the canopy gets caught in the branches because there's lines everywhere and there's branches everywhere. It's really not that bad. Um, but I've never done it on purpose. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. feels a bit wrong, like jumping into, uh, uh, when you can't see a landing zone, it's like one of the rules of yeah. skydiving, right? Base jumping. If you can't see, if you don't know where you're going to land, then you really want to consider whether you should jump it or not. But we did throw all our stuff out hundreds of kilos like 500 kilos of stuff in in four loads into the jungle with this awesome rig so the the, the load hangs 200 feet below the parachute so the load penetrates through the jungle canopy and gets down to the ground nice. before the parachute gets stuck in the trees military mates some boys from um Bryce norton that's what the british military do when you drop in into a forest and it makes sense right? because if you just mm -hmm. attach the load to a parachute normally it's going to get stuck at the top of a 100 foot, foot tall tree and a mate of mine who's a genius made these little uh, uh locator beacons it's a bit like an avalanche transceiver with a with a radio uh, transmitter and a and a loud beep, 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 and, a, and a flashing light on these little devices with a two-week battery because we needed that stuff, we you know we needed the stuff to climb the wall. You couldn't have completed the mission without it. Um, 
Yeah, and then we spent, it's 100K, so it's a week-long approach through proper primal rainforest uh, with half a dozen, actually there was about 10 local guys, they're called the Akawaya, the local tribe. Uh, and the coolest thing in Guyana, they speak English. It's a Caribbean. Oh. It's the only country in South America as English as a first language. Um, yeah. So they all talk like this, man, these <laughs> tribes people, like Amazonian Indians that speak like Bob Marley. And they, <laughs> they guided us through the jungle. We found all our stuff immediately. It worked like, it was almost disappointing how well it worked like from a film perspective. Again, yeah. there's no drama. We just went and found our stuff straight away. Like it would. Um, and then the coolest thing of all was two of these uh, Akawayo guys. Um, we brought extra kit so that, I've been I've done some stuff in Guyana before and I've worked with these people on TV stuff and they're super switched on, really fit, really intelligent, and they speak English. And we brought these two guys up the wall with us. We would never worn harnesses before. Wow. Yeah. And we trained them up <laughs> on the first bit of the climb, right? My mate Waldo Eddington taught them how to how to climb up ropes, how to come down ropes. That we brought the kit they needed, and uh, these guys live in this super remote village called Philippine. This epic mountain, it's a sacred mountain to them. It's like it's there on the horizon whenever it's not raining, which is only about twenty days of the year. Um, and we brought them up, and they uh, and we spent like two weeks living in portal edges. A team of eight with these two Amerindian dudes Brilliant. and they absolutely loved it you know they were just in hysterics the whole time swinging around on this massive overhanging cliff and we all got up there <laughs> safely um, and it was kind of big news in Guyana they uh you know it's a famous mountain in Guyana and uh the, it'd never been climbed by a, a Guyanese before and the fact that they were First Nations people they got medals like uh wow. of like an OB they got the country's highest honor for um their ascent which was which was super cool anyway the film's coming out like next week it's called uh house of the gods which is what tapui means in the local language and uh yeah it's ace where's that, your where's, where, where's it coming out on well first of all we're gonna it's gonna be at the kendall martin film festival which is yeah. uh, i think it's the 19th of november um, and then after that it'll probably be on like you know amazon or um something like that for uh for download with a bit of luck we might get it on tv that's awesome that's um yeah that's awesome I'm, i might see you up at the kendall mountain festival I'll, I'll probably end up coming up for it in november do do we uh let's have a pint yeah definitely leo i could listen to your stories for for hours mate um really inspiring really entertaining you've done some seriously awesome stuff Thank you for uh, speaking to me today and coming on. Thanks for asking me, mate. And let's uh, let's make that a date, eh? Third weekend of November. Anyone who's listening, get yourself to the Kendall Martin Film Festival. It's a blast. Yeah, for sure. And make sure you check out make sure you check out all of your films. Like, there's there's quite a few, right? True, true Grit's the best. Is it True Grit? <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> Hard no, Grit. Hard Grit. The sorry. original. The original. Uh, Asgard Project. And um, what's the the um, kite surfing one. The Spectre so, Expedition. Spectre Expedition. Yeah, check them all out. They're, they're awesome. Leo, thank you very much. Cheers, dude. Nice to meet you. Cheers, man. You too. Take care. Thanks to our sponsors, Harley Davidson, who have helped make this latest adventure possible. Check them out at harley-davidson.com 
or give at Harley underscore UKI a follow on Twitter. Thank you.